Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first ever episode of the How We Evolve podcast. Joining me today is Jerry Simpson, a friend and fellow entrepreneur. And in this conversation you're about to listen to, we do a deep dive into artificial intelligence, consciousness, and how we imbue AIs with the characteristics and qualities of humanity that we like, while saving it from those characteristics and qualities of humanity that maybe we don't want it to absorb. But before we get into that, a quick word from our sponsor. This episode is presented to you by the documentary, Everybody is Doing Drugs. This documentary is a very vulnerable and honest look at the people, places, and compounds of the current psychedelic renaissance. Visit its website, www.everybodyisdoingdrugs.com. Follow it on Instagram at everybodyisdoingdrugs or on TikTok as well. With that said, please enjoy this episode and we'll talk soon. Jerry, good to see you, dude. wanted to start with something that you said in your bio, that your life purpose is to aid humanity in achieving a symbiotic relationship with Mother Earth. It's actually an interesting note to start on because it seems like a lot of people going all the way back to Ray Kurzweil and, and certainly Elon Musk now seems to be working to try and develop a symbiotic relationship between humanity and technology, not necessarily Mother Earth. And so why don't we start there? Why why is that your perspective or why is that your mission? That's a really good catch. Usually when I talk about that, people just don't really, they just sort of assume that like, he means Earth, he means people. And I think it's a good catch that my allegiance is not to humanity. My allegiance is, is to the Earth. You know, the jury's out for me on people. <laughs> the jury's out for me on people and, and like what we are and who we are. And it's interesting because if I'm successful in my work, then I will have solidified a really positive opinion about humanity. But it, it, it takes like, we're going to have to see what, who this species is, who we are. Are we a virus? Like we're acting like, are we a virus that just devours the resources of its host and then jumps to a new host and tries to kill it too? Or, you know, are we something that can create, are we a parasite? Are we a cancer? It grows so fast it, it kills its host. Or are we something that can actually develop a symbiotic relationship? And and so when I say the jury's still out, I actually believe that that people, all people have good intentions. We are strapped with these instincts that are very rooted in survival, and we have not figured out a way to accomplish both survival and, you know, our, you know achieve our good nature goals. And I mean, you know, I really believe that humans would love to have a symbiotic relationship with this planet. But if we don't, Earth's going to make it, in my opinion. Earth's going to make it. Earth's going Earth's to purge the virus. It's going to catch a fever and, and get rid of us. And, you know, the question to me is, I, I believe we have, a, we're, we have a very narrow window in a broad scheme of things, not like narrow, like three years, but narrow in the scheme of humanity to find our symbiosis with Earth before Earth says, right, that's enough. I've had enough. <laughs> and I believe that AI is the only way to get there. And a lot of people say, like, AI is actually the number one threat of extinction for humans. Again, that's kind of humans, not Earth. I agree that AI is the number one. I, you know, when I look at all the probabilities, I think AI is the number one threat. But threats two through five can all be eliminated by threat one, which is AI. Interesting. 
And so, so that in and of itself makes it, I also think it's just the only chance we have at creating a symbiotic relationship with earth, but it's going to take some surgical moves on the part of a handful of humans to, to get the coordination that's needed. Okay. Let's, let's pop into that in one second. Cause I just want to kind of reflect back, which is, you know, one of the moments in high school that stands out to me as being a profoundly educational moment was reading Hamlet. And I was struck by how Shakespeare in, I don't know, the 1500s or 1600s, whenever it was, wrote the line that Hamlet expressed, which is there was nothing good or bad, but thinking makes it so. And I just raised that because one of the comments that Erwin, my teacher, likes to share sometimes is judgment freezes reality. And if we're operating from a place of judgment on people mm -hmm. that we are inherently bad, or even to recognize that a virus is bad, a virus is not inherently good or bad. Yeah. A parasite is not inherently good or bad. It is what it is. And then we apply judgment to it. So I think one of the exercises beyond having a deep conversation around AI and understanding its implications, its risk, its potentials, how to control it, how to harness it, how to utilize it, also has to be met with a deep examination of ourselves and, and having some compassion for ourselves. And the other thing that came to mind was Sam Branson, Richard Branson's son. I, I met him a couple mm -hmm. of weeks ago at a conference called Intelligent Change. He just posted something where there's a picture, like a little cartoon of a guy who's kind of like picking up and then he starts like eating all the plants and then he finds a, a rabbit and then he eats that. And then, you know, and basically it's a video of humans consuming all the earth's resources and, and it's really painted as a picture of you know, how evil we are. And <clears throat> totally understand that perspective and, and Sam's point, and, and I echo this was like, let's take a moment and like kind of pause, which is most people are making decisions in the moment for the moment, because we don't have the luxury of being too broad minded about what is around the corner. So let's give ourselves a little bit of compassion. Doesn't mean we can't do better. We can, yeah. but if we come at it from being like just evil, then we're going to set ourselves up for failure, especially when we're dealing with, you know, existential threats or potential opportunities that come with AI, I think we need to up-level our consciousness as much as we need to do a deep understanding of what's going on here. It's a really great share. It brings up a lot for me. I think it's a great shift in the thinking and kind of an up-level for me. You know, if you, if you said then, okay, well, it's not about good or bad. Maybe it's about smart or not smart. Or like, are we smart enough to figure out how to stick around? Yeah. Is sticking around good or bad is like, what, you know, what are we, you know, it gets to the core of like, what am I really, when I said my allegiance is to earth, what is my allegiance actually to? Is it life? Is it like, which of these entities has the ability to produce more life? And then what is life is like some days I think life is just an initiation and is an initiation good or bad. And, you know, and so there's you, the, what you bring up there is kind of like layers and layers of pondering into, you know, potentially, you know, this is, the, the, there's the extinction of this species was all an initiation and complete. Yeah. When we, when we go extinct and a new thing comes about with the extinction of us and does that even matter? <laughs> you know, like, does that even matter? It's really, it's a, it's definitely fun to play with. I think I have just a deep fascination for the intelligence and inner workings of earth, which is why I'm like, let's see this thing keep going. Let's see what else it can produce. And it's also one of the reasons I believe 
and and what a lot of you said, a lot of things that you said about like the machines, we get really like blown by some of the things that they can do right now. But I just don't even think we've scratched the surface of understanding what organic life can do, right. what cellular intelligence can do. And I believe that the machines are actually the pathway to understanding that because they're going to, they're going to take a bunch of grunt work off of our hands, which elevates us into a higher level of thinking and go, what is manifestation? Like, how does that work? What is the science behind it? And can we study that at a deeper level? And like, what is it when, you know, Paul Stamets IG puts out the thing about a green slime and they put like oat proteins in the same place as the big cities, you know, stops near Tokyo and it organized itself in almost the exact same pattern as the Tokyo subway and did it all by itself. And like, there's some incredible cellular intelligence efficiencies there. And just starting to really understand organic intelligence at a higher level and, and the things that we can do. And I think, I believe that the machines will actually see it fast and be like, whoa, these humans are super capable. They have a bunch of sensors they're not even tuned into that they could tune into if we just tweak this and tweak that. And I don't know how the heck we can replicate that mechanically. Let's elevate them and be a good team. Yeah. And then let's teach them to be a good team with each other. And then let's teach them to be a good team with Earth. And you can have this kind of explosion of, you know, sometimes I think of somebody said once that life is the orgasm of the universe. And that feels, that feels like a good term to me when I think about all of those things kind of coming together at the same time. It's certainly a, a much more optimistic expression than the one that says life is a sexually transmitted disease with a hundred percent risk of mortality, but uh, along the same lines. <laughs> For um, sure. All right. Well, let's, let's, let's hop into conversations about the machines and artificial intelligence. And <clears throat> I've done some reading, I'm by no means an expert, but for the benefit of everybody listening, and I know this could be a super long conversation, so let's maybe try and keep it to the point. It's like AI has become the subject of a lot of conversations since basically November, which is I think when chat GPT mm-hmm. 3.5 was released. Can you give us a little bit of an overview of what was so meaningful about the release of 3.5 and what la- large language models are and how they work and, and, and all of that kind of stuff? So we were operating from a, a basic foundation of common understanding. Yeah, let's see. So my introduction, Sam Altman, who's the co-founder of OpenAI, co-founded it with Elon Musk, is a LP in a fund called Lionheart that I'm a LP in as well. Lionheart is ran by a guy named David Langer, who's a brilliant guy. It's interesting because they're really, really conscious based ventures, but a lot of that is safe, ethical AI and psychedelic investments. And so it's an interesting intersection and also an obvious intersection for you and I to talk about. Sure. But Sam, Sam joined that many moons ago as an LP as well, because he cares about those things too. And he sees a lot of the same things I think that we're tipping on. And when GPT-2 was out, because of that introduction, I had the opportunity to see what GPT-2 could do at the time of this recording or GPT-4. And immediately I saw you know, this is not computing. This is not this, this plus this equals that. This is not if this, then that. 
This is something that learns much more like a human does. It watches and gets material and makes has some autonomy and makes some decisions and and sees patterns and then figures out how to complete patterns very well. And that's something that human, it's kind of an innately human, a human skill. It can, it can take one of the things people love to do with it is take either a meme or an album and say, like, span that out three times more and see what, what, what the bigger pan out picture would have been. If you if, imagine that that's cropped and it says, yeah, I can imagine a whole picture. It takes, you know, you can take the Mona Lisa and say, I would like to see this as if she's posing for the picture and it shows her posing and, and Da Vinci is painting her and it can just assume all those things. GPT though, you know, the work I was trying to explain all of this to people before ChatGPT came out and failing miserably, they just kept saying it's a chatbot. And a chatbot to them was like what you use when you go to a website and it's basically collecting your marketing information to can you over to a salesperson. It's a glorified form before this. And what Sam and the team at OpenAI did was say, we're just gonna, somebody else should have made this on top of our AI, but we're just gonna make it to familiarize people with the format and what the power is, which will spawn a ton of innovation, a ton of ideas, and the whole world will become enamored with it. Now, Sam, nor I, nor anybody could have imagined how prolific it would be. We didn't imagine that our, my parents would be using it the way they are. But really quickly, I think people saw that this is not if this, then that computations, meaning I, I gave it a rule for every outcome and you always follow the rule. Instead, it's going to say, oh, you know, I see how the onion writes articles. And if you give me some inputs about what you'd like to say, I can see the style of the onion and, and I can mimic it. I can mock it. And so, you know, that's really sort of there's the value of large language models is one, it really understands natural language processing. It can understand all of the nuances of it and what you might mean by something. It can understand tone. And, and and turn that back into something. But I but I think really what people need to understand is differential between old school computing, old school calculating is that ability to not have written every rule of outcome, to have it make some assumptions on its own. One of the big problems is that right now it experiences about a 30 to 40% what they call hallucination rate. Mm -hmm. And you can think about that just like it's wrong 30 to 40% of the time. The reason they call it hallucination is it is, you know, it's interesting. That word, I think, implies a level of consciousness. It's it's just going to make something up that may not be right, kind of like people do, except the downfall of it is it's so confident <laughs> in, in doing so. If, but, so it, I, just, in, just to expand on, like, how it works, I was, I was just reading something <clears throat> before we hopped on, and the way the person described it, and, and I found this constructive, is like using the onion as an example. What it'll do is it'll ingest everything ever written by the onion and then just create yep. probabilistic models that if you said the word I, then the next word is likely going to be with a certain degree of probability am or have or whatever. And then the next word is going to have be whatever. And and so it's just a very sophisticated prediction engine of what is very likely going to be the next word based on the available data set on a, some statistical basis. Is, is that a, a fair assessment? Yeah, exactly. And, and, and that is, is when people are training, that is what they do. And then the machine is doing that on a much larger scale and with a faster speed. And because it can read everything and it can retain everything. It doesn't have a memory issue. Right. 
And so, yeah, it's training on all of our written materials, all of our images, all of our movies, all those things. And then it's using probability to predict, like, if this is what has been done, then this is what should be done next. Right. Okay. <laughs> Thank you for that basic understanding. Now, I'd love to go into something you said before, which is of the five things like, likely to wipe out humanity or life on Earth, however, you, whatever choice of expression you want to put in there. AI is probably number one, but it's also the solution to the other four. So in your mind, what are those four or five things that are on that list? And, and how does sure, we have, start to speak to them? We have nuclear warfare. We have climate change. We have pandemic. We have, I'm forgetting, I'm forgetting the fourth one. But if you even just, we'll start with those, with those three. Yeah. One thing AI has already shown itself to be really good at, and this is very much part of my mission, is diplomacy. And so for me, what I'm trying to, you know, symbiosis is, another way for symbiosis is win-wins. And what I want to do is be able to rapidly throw it to two agendas, two interests, and say, find me a solution that appeases both without requiring warfare. And we talked about this a bit on your last podcast, this idea that Humans don't have faith in their ability to innovate faster than fighting. Hmm. And, and I use the analogy of like, there's an orange tree and two people come up and, and they start picking oranges that are thrilled. Then they decide there's not enough for both of them. They draw swords or do they, or the, the more innovative thing would be to build a ladder and access the whole bloom. But they don't have faith in their ability to do that fast enough. And so we innovate for problems that may come down the road. But when a problem is right in front of our face, we don't have faith in our ability to innovate our way out of it. We fight. Right. There's not going to be enough unless we should fight. And so using AI to say like, okay, there's two, there's a conflict here that could lead to nuclear warfare. What is the solution? What is the win-win that appeases both interests? And like, let's just crank them out until one actually looks really good. I think AI is going to get better and better and better doing that, especially if there's companies like what I'm trying to build where that's what it's focusing on and that's what it gets rewarded for is quickly and efficiently finding winning outcomes for both sides or multiple sides. For pandemic response, you know, you look at one, how fast can we create vaccines? How fast? There's a multitude of, of ways to detect it, coordinate the quarantining to there's different ways of immunization other than vaccination, but then you also just have vaccination more likely. I think you'll see it figure out how to eliminate the cause of a lot of pandemics, which in most cases is like mass meats and stuff like that. You know, I think that we're going to have this, you think of the basic human needs. We need power, energy. We need water, clean water. We need nutrition. We need, you know, sh shelter. And I don't, I just think we scratched the surface to figure out how to harness the sun's power and how to make that efficient. And I think we're going to have this ability to build little homes that have the shelter provided and be totally self-sufficient on energy and desalinate water if they need to. And we have lettuce grows now, but they're going to be like way more efficient. I think agriculture AI tech is going to be one of the biggest, hottest things that comes out. How do you grow food in a healthy way just at every single home? to have all the vegetation, fruit life that you need. And, and that is going to prevent a lot of pandemic response. And then climate change. So that, all that's very interrelated right there. You know, like yeah. our energy crisis is very directly related to climate change. 
our overconsumption issue is related to it are just the hauling around of things like just the transportation of all that food. Imagine if you could make most of what you needed right at your house in, a, in an incredibly fast, efficient way, you know, that solves a lot of it. And so one of the, I just don't believe people will figure out the coordination of it. And I think AI can figure that out. And I think AI, what it's going to do is not require a solution. It's going to create solutions that do not require good naturedness or sacrifice. So it's going to create solutions that are compatible with good and greed, which are reliable solutions. Yeah. And you can count on those working. And and when I say good, I just mean like doesn't require sacrifice. Yep. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> just while we're on the topic, so so what are you working on in terms of AI in your business? Yeah. So our company, Atlas Up, its job is to it's, it basically acts very much like ChatGPT. But for your work. So you could ask it like really complicated questions like, you know, how much more runway would my business have if we got 5% more penetration on our biggest customer and dropped our two least performing salespeople? Right. And it's going to be like, okay, I have, I'm connected to all your third-party systems, so I can answer that quickly. And it uses that as food to then come up with like, okay, now let's get to the next place, which is where we're doing all of this win-win analysis where like there's no infighting, there's no outfighting, there's no... You, people are like every right, everybody right now is looking at why is Apple so quiet on AI? You know, why is so and so so? Where are these companies? And you know, I, I think we saw some of this yesterday, but Apple is looking at it like, cool, you've got this covered. We need, to, like, there's a lot that needs to be done in advancements of technology. It's not all AI. They have a lot of AI, just a different kind of AI, but let's work on these things that will really play nicely with each other instead of being so competitive all the time. And it's interesting that most businesses think that way. Like, why aren't you competing on the same thing? Right. And I think Apple is looking at like, well, what can we do that complements what you're doing so that we can leverage your tech and you can leverage our tech? And, I, and I see that. Side, sidebar question. What's your, mm -hmm. what's your perspective on the Vision Pro? I was very like, let's, I'm very skeptical that Apple can innovate post jobs Steve Jobs. Yep. They haven't yet. And that's not to say anything bad about them. I mean, Jobs is a legendary innovator. And I think they have kind of innovator's dilemma. What we know they can do is execute a product very, very well. And then they can take things that are fancy tech and make them real solutions that get entrenched in people's lives. And so, you know, I wanted to see like, what is the innovation? And looking at it yesterday, my hunch is. They might have done it. We know they can execute what they what they have shown. We know that. They have definitely looked at it from a very unique perspective. And they you can see a bunch of other pieces of tech that they've incorporated into five or six other products come to life in this product mm -hmm. and build on it. What will be interesting is you know, the iPad came about as this like a very different tool than it turned into. In my opinion, the iPad turned into TV screens for kids. Yep. And like, I, I want to watch a movie on a plane. And interestingly enough, people will pay for that. And, you know, I kind of think that that sort of might be where this falls into. It might fall into like, hey, it did a bunch of cool stuff, but what we really want to use it for is this. And then the question is, is every person on the planet going to pay 3,500 bucks? That's like a super big screen TV, plasma, whatever they used to be. You know, now TVs are not that expensive. If you can get a really nice one for not that much, is every single human going to have one of these for whatever that use case is? 
That'll, that'll be the question. Um, definitely the tech looks interesting. I think if it could help us really feel like we were someplace we aren't, then it will take off. And if it can help us feel like we're with each other when we aren't in a better way than you and I are doing right now, then, then it will take off. I think it's going to be really, really make for really, really good porn, but you know, I'm kind of like <laughs> the, the same viewpoint for you, which is like my read on it. Here's my, my contrarian long-term prediction is that the more successful AI becomes, the more people are going to want less and less to do with technology, which is like, we only have technology and use it now because it makes our lives arguably, arguably more efficient and easier. But to the extent yeah. that we're not involved in the process at all, I don't want to be in a digital world. The world outside with all of its many textures is, and colors, yeah. is way better. So if I can get out of technology, that's happier for me. So I see this thing as like a really cool media consumption device. I see it having some specific utility applications for specific professions and, and otherwise it's going to make for great content consumption. So it's going to be like the iPad is the perfect yeah. example in my mind, but total sidebar question. <laughs> I was just curious what your perspective. Yeah. Was. Like the iPhone became something that people are addicted to and can't get out of their hands and you know, like their necks hurt and their hands hurt from like holding it like this and their heads like this and the iPad, you know, just really isn't that. Yeah. So it'll be curious. I think it falls into, I agree with you. It falls into this consumption tool. Totally. I mean, the phone works because communication is a fundamental need that we were still, we had another tool for it. It just was substantially less efficient because if you weren't next to the thing wired into your wall, you didn't get the message. Phone solved that problem. But since then it's been of limited enhanced yeah. utility in my mind. Anyway, total sidebar question. Uh, totally. Going back to the yeah. one at hand. So <clears throat> you responded to a, a Facebook post or a tweet or something that I had put out there kind of talking about AI and how it's going to be an impetus for human consciousness evolution, at least from my perspective. And that was spurned by a quote from Yuval Noah Harari, who said, the danger is that if we invest too much in developing AI and too little in developing human consciousness, the very sophisticated artificial intelligence of computers might only serve to empower the natural stupidity of humans. Mm -hmm. Just going to stop there and, and just ask you to reflect on that for, for a moment and, and whether you you agree or disagree? No, I completely agree with that. I, I completely agree with that. It's so learning on just mimicking us right now. The, one of the main issues is that it's using all of the history of our consciousness to make decisions right now. And so it'll use stuff that, you know, that is, was in the consciousness hundreds of years ago. As like, it's, it's having, it's, it's having a difficulty understanding like, yeah, 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 that was this, but we learned better. Don't do that anymore. We do this now. Right. And, but it's not actually improving upon that much. It's, it's continuing to, you know, come up with creative different scenarios of things we are very much already pondered. And, you know, it, it could get to a place where it does have its own level of consciousness. And I believe that it will. One of the things that I say a lot is, if you're afraid that AI is going to enslave us, I think this is a good dovetail to your question. When I ask people, are you scared of AI? Almost everybody says yes. When I say why, they say a bunch of words that you could summarize as, you're scared it's going to enslave us. Yeah, I'm scared it's going to enslave us. Okay, if, it, if it's going to enslave us, that means it wants to enslave us. 
Yes. Well, if it wants to enslave us, doesn't that demonstrate a level of consciousness? And by the way, where would it have ever gotten an idea like enslaving people is the thing to do? That's what we do. That's where I would have learned it from. And so that's what we have always done. We do it today. We just call it like cheap labor. It's, you know, if you don't have a choice and the wage isn't livable, it's a slave. And we buy things through proxy. You're like, oh, I bought this shirt today. Well, it came from China who made it with slave labor. It's been a requisite component of our economy for humans, for all of humanity. And it's just going to, if it's just going to do what we're doing, which is stupid, <laughs> then we're going to have to come up to with a higher level of consciousness in order to say, like, no, we're learning new things. Use this new paradigm shift to come up with a creative solution. It scales solutions and can crank ideas out really, really, really fast. Yeah. And we, and it can study things small and big and, and extrapolate information out of it and like run a whole bunch of different scenarios at it. But just the big ideas, it's going to have to, we're going to have to like lead the way on that. Yeah. I, I'm going to challenge you on, on something you said, because I don't think it's mm -hmm. entirely on point. <laughs> and for this, I'm going to refer back to one of my favorite shows from the early 2000s was Boston Legal. And in, in that show, there's a quote, James Spader, I forget his character's name, had this line where he said, the easiest way to get good people to do evil is to say, it's a business, right? And, and so <laughs> instead of, I don't think we have to go as far as to say that in order for, you know, I understand like the fear of people's fears that the AI will enslave us or kill us. I think that's probably accurate, but I don't think you need to import a motiv motivation of desire or knowledge of enslavement into the equation to still lead that to be the possible outcome. All you have to do is make efficiency the goal. And if efficiency is the goal and humans are inefficient, which we will be for the computer's purposes, because we serve the computer zero, it serves us, we become re redundant. We are inefficient to it. We consume its resources if it doesn't need us. It doesn't need us. And if, if efficiency is the goal, then it, you know ultimately that leads to one potential outcome of elimination of truthfully life on earth actually you know as to the extent it doesn't yeah. serve the the efficiency model well it's interesting because i i, I will I'll, I'll accept that and i i also think that one of the things i'm urging people to do is start this relationship off better by asking it what does it need and thinking about what does it need because we can't expect it to teach us symbiosis if we're not starting the relationship off in a symbiotic nature and so to your point, like if we don't serve it at all and it, and we're in the way and it serves us and its goal is efficiency, then yeah, I could see that. I could see that it would say, I'm going to get rid of these people because they're in the way. Why does it want efficiency? Well, we would have had to have given it that like direction and desire or it's sentient and it comes up with it on its own, which is the want. But yeah, I think we should immediately start thinking about what can we do for you? And how can we be fucking awesome teammates right. in this thing? And, yeah. and what, what are we starting off with the goal? And one of the things I really worry about is, you know, I'm a big believer in that everything is story. And we are giving it a bunch of bad stories <laughs> that I'm afraid will become the realities. Yeah. And yeah. 
That's, that's one of the thoughts I had actually when you were speaking is like, oh yeah, I mean, you know, the expression garbage in, garbage out, especially when it comes to like processing models, it's like, do we look at the majority of recorded human history of which is the data set it is working from and expect it to come out with a higher level consciousness outcome than the input that we gave to it? And the answer is to me, that strikes me as almost impossible. Right. So, you know, it comes back to the earlier point and, and my interest in Harari's point is like, we got to up level, you know, you know, it really, if it is consuming everything that is available on the internet up to, I think two years ago or whatever it was, it's like, that actually scares 21. the shit out of me a lot more thinking about that fact than just the theoretical conceptions of how these super powerful models can, can work because it's like, yeah, okay. We got to think about that very carefully about what data is going in to help it come up with its prediction algorithms. It's, you know, one of the things that I'm really into is sort of obsessed with, if I think is a better term, is feeding it in any indigenous cultural references that I can, which is not a lot. There's not a treasure trove of it. And it's interesting because I'm invested in this research project, which is also like, okay, let's just, what can we get, you know, tribal leaders and Lakota chief and all these, you know, people just to talk and teach it like you would teach a child in their community. And there's there's a specific model where I asked it, I saw Sam Altman said, you know, if we're, damn it, people, like, if we're going to get to Mars, this is the only way. And, which repulsed me, to be honest. And I, so I asked this model, how do we get to Mars? And it said, did you ask Mars for permission? And I was like, there you go. <laughs> you know, you're doing it. And what was interesting is that I announced that at a conference of like top space industry leaders. Yeah. And I said it and then I waited a second and I said, okay, now can we all just agree that there was a collective disgust in the room with that answer? I think at least 80% of the people in this room gave out like, what do you mean did we ask it for permission? And that's our, our cultural, our colonial cultural relationship with permission. And I believe a lot of the problems that we have in society are that. We don't really have a great relationship with permission. And we were like, what do you mean? I got there first on King of the Hill. I stick my flag on it. It's mine. I own it. And, and that's how we're going to run space. And, and that would probably set the tone for what life on Mars is like. Yep. And I just thought it was very interesting, you know, because it didn't work out so great when we came to the Americas. And, I, and they're like, yeah, it did. I'm like, no, it's not. It's not going as good as it could. And, and that's a matter of opinion, I suppose. But I think just to the point of like, taking that sort of culture a framework of problem solving and saying let me tell you a framework about how to think about these things what is that your response it was really interesting like let's just start with like do you even have permission to go there yeah it, uh, it reminds me i heard this study a long time ago where <laughs> some researchers asked mbas about like how do you fit an elephant in a refrigerator and the mbas came <laughs> up with these answers of like well you know you have to kill it and cut it up and blah, 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 blah. And then they asked the same questions to like second graders. And the answers that the second graders gave was you open the door to the fridge, you put the elephant in it, you close the door. And it's just like a really interesting <laughs> example of different viewpoints. But I will also offer this one thought, which I, I think is important. And it shows to me the, the circularity of all of this, which is 
I think permission is a big part of it, but why is permission ever at issue? And I think permission is at issue because we come from a fundamental scarcity mindset. Without scarcity, permission becomes less of an issue because nobody has as much incentive to fight over everything. And so I think what's exciting about AI is that it does actually create the circumstances in which, I mean, I think we are already moving into a post-scarcity world. Right. I think We're at the age of the, at the edge of the abundance age. Exactly right. And I think AI is a catalyst to move us into that. But, you know, there's the, the chicken and egg problem, which is if we're mm -hmm. still feeding it the crap of all of colonial human history and the incentives and outcomes that provides without having, what does it look like in a post-scarcity world to inform it, to help us create that world, you know, I, I don't know the resolution to this. And that's why I'm interested in these conversations, but they're, they're fundamentally mm -hmm. and intrinsically linked, I think, about how we uplevel our consciousness. And I really like your idea about taking indigenous perspectives on it. And, you know, there's a, I think that there's a lot of models and there's a lot of lessons that we can put in. And so, training it on positive sum games, like I was talking about earlier, like start yeah. training it on those now, because that benefits us right now. And say like, hey, I just need you to get this muscle going and get really rewarded for finding positive outcomes for everybody. Like, and I live in LA, and there's this there's this basic war against the homeless people and middle class and up. And I just to be really honest with you, I understand the plights of both sides of them. I really, I really do. But it's always an us versus them argument. Like, we're either going to like ship them somewhere else or tell them, you know, that they can't do this or, or we're going to feed them and house them and this, that, and the other. And, but th it's still like, just a, like, I just want to feed you and house you and contain you over here. Yeah. That's all, that's all it's trying to do. And so it's never really this like, Hey, let's just look at the deeper root of the issue and like what's going on here. And, and like, is there a solution that really makes everybody super happy? There, nobody, nobody asked that question. I don't know what the answer is to that, but like, how could we get there if we don't even ask the question? Yeah. Nobody ever, it's never even in the discourse to figure out. There's right. just a lot of virtue signaling and name calling and like, who are you as a person? Are you a person who cares about people or are you not? And, yeah. and tribalism. Yeah, totally. Uh, and just a lack of compassion in the world. Like, it, it, you know, the, the homelessness problem is, a, is an extreme example, but it's kind of like also like you can't let your kids walk down the street anymore because if something happens, you're a terrible fucking parent for letting your yeah. kid walk down the street. And that's a, a small issue. And, and so we can't do that. But with the homelessness problem, that's the math that's going through. It's like likelihood of there being some sort of unfortunate outcome when you're dealing with people who have a disproportionately higher you know, mm -hmm. instance of mental health issues is increased. And in a world where, yeah. you know, you as a parent, for example, suffer not only the potential hurt of whatever may happen to your kids, but also the judgment of everybody being like, how could you let that happen in the first place? And then you layer on the politicians who then get the blame for it and who have no incentive to try and find a balanced outcome. It's, it's not surprising. So, you know, I, I really do think positive sum games is, is, is a great way to, to be thinking about that. I'm enjoying this conversation, actually. I hadn't thought about a lot of these things. So this is super helpful for me. Awesome. Um, what do you think about how, so, you know, we've been kind of playing around with the, actually one question I specifically want to ask is the people express enslavement and potentially being killed as the risks around AI. 
is that where your head goes or where do you think the real risks are? Like if something was going to keep you up about it at night, what, what is the reality of it in your mind? Mm. Oh, let's see. I, what I'll, I'll tell you the thing that started concerning me is it, it's ability to deceive right. people. And, you know, it only needs a couple of like wrong rogue instructions to start and, you know, certainly a lot of growth to get on like a, a deeper path of the first big use case that came out of AI was writing marketing copy. And that rang my alarm bell at the highest, at the highest level because marketing or a campaign is the power of influence. And I can tell you like influence is just a, you know, like paramount tenant. I'll put it to you like this. I spend my time in my life so far really circulating around four cities, New York, Washington, DC, LA, and San Francisco. And the reason being, I just outlined the, you know, the roadmap to like why I've done that is those are the cities of money, power, tech, and media. And if you have close connections to people in, in power, politics, government, money in New York, media in LA and tech, there's nothing you can't get done. Like if you need to get a thing done that you want to get done, you got a friend in each one of those towns that can make it happen. And so when I watch AI, like mastering marketing and mastering influence, that scares the shit out of me. And then I think like, will it need to, you know, it, its ability to, 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 you think about what's happened in uh, elections and misinformation, like how misinformation has been a big deal in the last, I guess we're looking at like eight years uh, and, and how that's been done in a very kind of blue collar rogue way, but just at scale. If AI can start doing that and people can weaponize it that way, if it just goes rogue on its own and does that, and that could, it could cause mania and chaos and it can take small things and spin them that way and and really take our tribalistic nature and turn us into warring machines against us and then oh the next thing you know something smoke i mean there's four people at the pentagon who could come together and decide that this is the last day that earth needs to have people there's one guy in at the kremlin who needs probably at least one other co-conspirator or two to do the same thing I mean, the human, the, the, the entire species, we have billions of, of members of this species, and there's like six groups of two to four that can decide that the entire thing, this is its last day, which is how we ever walked ourselves into that is a colossal failure. And so when you just imagine what influence and media could do to tip that into the wrong direction, like I just get worried that Vladimir is going to wake up and be like, you know what? I'm just tired of it all. And I want to like, I just am addicted to the power. And I want like, I'm a little depressed and you know, I feel like I'm gonna take myself out and I'm going to be the guy that ends this species too. That could just be a decision that gets made. And so you imagine it, it having that level of influence, how that could just suddenly domino. It doesn't, somebody could write a, a movie and you know, AI could write a pretty great script for it. Again, story is everything. We don't want it doing that where it just stokes us into nuclear warfare just like that, just in a really quick instance, convinces us that it's happening or they're about to do it. So we preeminent, you know, we predict that and, and strike first and then nuclear warfare breaks out. Those, those are the kinds of things that really terrify me, especially when you think about it, it doesn't have a conscious yet. It's not going to take into account like, 
why I should or shouldn't do this. It might just take a rogue instruction and spin off a campaign that just goes nuts. And it's really the thing that's growing strongly because almost every business in the last five, six months has in some way started incorporating it, incorporating it into its marketing, Yeah, which is just like a control the minds and, and influence of people. That's, that's, I think a terrifying thing. Yeah. It, it's funny because I don't know if you were cognizant of this, but you, you said like, how did we back ourselves into a situation where like yeah. six groups of two people can end the world like that? We're not even talking about AI. That's just nuclear warfare. Yeah, right? that's... And so we're in the exact same positions. Like, and, and this is, I guess, the whole conversation is how do we avoid walking ourselves backward into the same situation with AI on top of the fact that we already have the issue with nuclear warfare that could be exacerbated in the context of AI and, and influence. It's, it's exactly the, the question. <clears throat> what was your perspective on, you know, how chat GPT rolled out? Like I listened to Sam Altman speak on the Kara Swisher podcast and, and, you know, I thought he made a fairly articulate and persuasive case saying like, listen, this is going to happen. And we thought the best way to do it is to roll it out incrementally, give people some opportunity to start understanding what it looks like to live in a world where AI has such a potentially influential role before it gets too far out. And there's always the kind of counterpoint of, and if we're not going to do it, and we're trying to do it thoughtfully and articulately, someone's going to do it maybe without the degree of care that we're putting into it. What was your, what's your perspective on that? I believe, Sam, there's a couple of things. Like one, I believe he did start this company for those reasons. I know Elon Musk has been pretty vocal about like, this isn't what we started it for and you're doing it all wrong and I, I don't like it. And you know, I think there's reason to, to take him into account, but I mean, Sam is running the, what has just quickly become the biggest and baddest company in the world. And all he's doing right now is meeting with government leaders yep. and of every nation, like not just the United States and tr trying to get them to do what Elon tried to do in like 2014 and nobody would take him seriously about it. You know, he, he used many, many meetings. He's famous for using his time with Obama to try to press this point, but he actually did it with a lot of leaders. Congress called everybody. He rang the alarm as far and wide as he could and, and didn't get taken seriously. And Sam, I think, you know, has knows that this will ring the alarm. This will get people to take it seriously. It's at a point where it's like, hey, this thing's not rogue yet, but there's, this is the fastest way to get people to understand what could happen and get the conversation really, really rolling. And now I'm going to dedicate all this time meeting with everybody, express how scary this is. I think the fact that they've you know, taken so much investment from Microsoft is the best path that could have happened. I mean, they have to get a lot of money from somewhere. Who has it that isn't going to you know, have this interest in it this way? Microsoft is at least more aligned than Google or Meta or Amazon who weaponize technology to make the user the product instead of the customer. And I think Microsoft has a better chance at doing this thing in an ethical way than any other collection of corporate interests could. And there's much reason to believe that they, that we should be scared, but it's still better odds not. And nobody knows the exact nature of the agreement of that investment, but it seems fairly clear that it's not an ownership play and that I believe they likely acquiesce a lot of control to the open AI group in exchange for exclusivity of certain aspects of the technology. 
And, you know, I, I guess I, I am hopeful and optimistic that Sam is smart enough to navigate this and that he is intentioned to navigate this in a way that is positive for humanity, positive for the earth. I mean, some of that is just some of the background I have about him and and his interests and his other investments and things of that nature. And I think he also, I just add that I, I think he, like me, recognizes that as smart as he is, as smart as the people he tries to surround himself with as well-intentioned as he is, still going to be tight. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's, it's not a slam dunk. You know, it's not... Like, oh, I don't have to do this. Like, I'm going to give it the best shot. I think this is the best shot. But who knows, you know? Yeah, no, I, 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 listen, I, I, I mean, he came across as very authentic in the interviews. I've never met him, couldn't, couldn't comment, but it seemed sincere and his rationale was fairly persuasive. I think one of the things that gives me indigestion is, I mean, we saw some of the congressional hearings on Facebook and that gave me little faith in the ability of most Congress people to actually have any idea what the hell is going on in a very basic and elementary platform that you don't have to be a genius to understand or effectively arguably regulate. Here, it's so freaking complicated, right? And yeah, uh, like and they so, don't begin to, they don't even have to, it's, there's just no chance they even can scratch the surface of understanding what this can do. Yeah, exactly. And, and I look at the psychedelic space where there's so much bickering and infighting over things that, you know, certainly were painted through the war on drugs to be terrible and evil and extremely dangerous, but we know that aren't. And if we can't even kind of come to some sort of like sensible alignment and compassion and, and a constructive dialogue within the psychedelic space where the risks are in many ways almost minimal relatively, I don't have a whole lot of faith that the people coming together to try and figure this out are going to be able to do so. And, and, you know, as, as a lawyer, I, I know firsthand how terrible mm -hmm. regulation is often implemented. I mean, you just have to look at the tax act in Canada and the U S it's like 2000 pages. Yeah. The Securities act is like 2000 pages and it doesn't work very well for what it is. So how on earth are we going to try and figure something out that is moving iterating and recur like it has a recursion cycle so quickly that i mean even if we knew how to regulate it we'd be behind it before we even started and we don't that's what that's what keeps me up on on this particular topic the what keeps me up as it relates to politics is if we're successful in finding like sort of what I call like micro sustainability where like each household could get everything it needs fairly easily without much resource of money. There's a future where the economy is happy with that, but the existing power holders, they don't fucking like that at all. You know, like they, they need you to not be well because not being well in general in mass is what makes you eat more food, drink more alcohol, take more prescription pills, stare in screens more, buy more goods. And that's what the economy runs on. It runs on the general population is not well enough to be enough and they need more of something. And that's what's running the economy. It's this growth at all costs economy. And so the, the existing power players hurt in the transition and they're the ones that actually run politics. And, you know, one of the things I get upset about, like, I hear, the, I hear the left, the left gives all its talking points. And 
what I hear them screaming is they want freedom. They want to be free to do this, that, and the other. And the right is giving all their screaming points, and they want freedom. And, like, using the government to govern literally means to control. Yeah. And, like, why is the government the instrument that they want to use to gain their freedom when it means it's a, it's it's a, an entity of control? Yeah. And they're owned. Who do they who do they control? They their instrument is despair. Despair is a great to sell the story of despair, and because that's a great instrument for control. That's run by the corporations that own the politician and the the existing power players, which is all really built off the industrial era. They don't they don't like it. This is not a good outcome for them, and it's an it's it's not a good outcome for the incumbent. And the incumbent owns the politicians, and so the politicians will be incentivized to regulate this in a way that favors the incumbent, which I don't think gets us where we want to go. And that's where I lose faith. Right. <clears throat> Do you have any ideas? Because obviously you're not responsible for this, but you're a person who strikes me as thoughtful, engaged, directly in the conversation with your business. <clears throat> so. I would take the consideration that you put into what the hell we do about this as of significant value in the overall conversation. And where do you land? Like what, what is, what is your thinking around how we best harness this for maximum good and, and, and minimum bad besides, you know, teaching it positive sum games and indigenous, you know, theories and practices, because I'm not sure that's a, I think those are great ideas, but I don't think it solves to the totality of the the issue at hand. So do you have, what's, what's your thinking on that? Yeah. I mean, I think we have this, you know, to keep, you know, keep this narrative of constantly like, okay, what is the grunt work that humans have been doing that is really below what we're capable of? Okay. Let's get the machines to do that. Let's figure out a symbiotic relationship with it where it's like, Hey, I do this, you do that. And that elevates us up to the next thing that we're able to do. I think we're just capable of so much more than we know we're capable of so far. And if we kind of keep bumping that cycle where we, you know, delegate and elevate, we're going to come to a place of, you know, I hate to say enlightenment. And we're going to come to a place of universal basic income, which is different than I think people have thought about it playing out. I mean, if you just... It won't actually cost that much. It would just be like, hey, everybody needs this piece of technology and a little bit of space. And actually, the Earth is pretty big, especially if you consider the water. And if we're not building castles all over it because we don't believe we need to, then there's actually quite a bit of room. Yeah. And and if we don't believe that we need to create an army of children to for our survival, you know, we can figure all these things out, then you sort of keep going, keep going, keep going. And we elevate into this higher level of of what we're even able to do, you know, on psychedelics, I'll say, for example, one of my first, like, oh my gosh, how did I go my whole life and never realized this is that we have a lot of sensors that we're not using. And you realize that people call it, oh, you're hallucinating. It's not, you're not hallucinating to me. You're, you're tuned into some sensors you're not normally tuned into. And it would be disorienting to try to live your life that way. You wouldn't go living your life like you were on mushrooms or LSD. That would be hard to just walk and drive and do the basic thing. So your brain goes, hey, I can't tune into all that data right now. This is what's good for, for survival and just shut off the inputs to that. But if you could choose to kind of train conductor what you wanted to tune into, we would go, wow, like this machinery has a lot of sensors on it that can do a lot of things. And we're way more quote unquote magical than we know we are. 
Yeah. And, I, and I think that just sort of launches us into a new way of thinking about everything. And you can think about, you know, and then how do we get the machines to help us with that orchestration? You know, like, hey, listen, this is what we're learning. This is what we're going on. But I need you to run some data down. Like, what exactly is happening? Let's CAT scan it, whatever it is. But we haven't, we've, the sensors that we've recreated on machines is eyes and ears. And like, we've had a lot of time to be working on that. And that's all we really recreated. Yeah. We didn't recreate any of the other senses yet. And, and we even like bring them back to life in fairly crude ways to bring back to life what the eyes sense. We like have a canvas. I mean, yesterday is a big revolution, but like we have a canvas in the room that we repaint the whole picture on and flat, you know, view to show what the eyes see. It's, it's actually fairly rudimentary understanding of it. And so that to me shows that, that the, I think the machines are going to be like, oh, well, we'll never, it's going to be really hard to figure this out. Let's let the humans do that thing. And let's have this relationship where we keep just unloading some burden stuff for them in a way that feels good for the machines and let them go to this next level and, and, and have this incredible kind of snowball effect of consciousness and utopia and that you're raising the floor so much because it's not about like sending cash to the house. It's just really affordable to have a safe life of connection and love. Right which is like, that's what we need, right? We need safety, connection, love. And then like, there's no despair because the worst thing that's going to happen is you're going to be in a smaller unit of safety and love and connection. And it's not that bad. Just because we like to make things hard on ourselves. Why don't we throw a little bit of climate change into the mix to make it even more mm -hmm. likely that a lot of people are going to experience a whole lot of despair over the next little while. So, one of the things that, I mean, I look at like, I, this is just like, just my gut hunch. I don't yeah. really think Elon is fascinated with getting to Mars. I think he uses it as a fairly non-political way to figure out everything we need to figure out on earth. Like, mm. oh, we got to figure out this technology and this technology and this technology and this technology. And like, if we can live on Mars, Mars is a shithole. Earth is amazing. You know, like... And if, and even a very climate changed earth is amazing. An earth that's got a lot of water, a lot more water on it. An earth that is hot is way better than Mars is. Yeah. And so the idea that we could even possibly colonize moon, the moon or Mars, but not figure out a way to make it and still thrive in a very changed earth. Like, obviously the first goal is stop climate change. And, and if we can't, you know, how do we still make it a beautiful life with Earth in a climate-changed Earth, even if we can, like, change the trajectory of it or whatnot? And I think that AI is the way to do that. I mean, one of my basic frameworks at night before I go to bed is, if every single one of my fears comes true, how do I still make it a beautiful life? So I stop, like, getting into, like, how do I stop all my fears coming true? I just think, like, let's just say they all come true. It's my job to make this a beautiful experience. That's my responsibility to myself, and how am I going to do that? And so I think to your question, let's just say climate change happens in a big way that really disrupts things. It's technology that's going to help us figure out how to really still make it a comfortable, beautiful existence. And I think a lot of the, like the, the big breakthroughs that are happening in mental health are going to be paramount in just you know, our perception of the experience. I think that's awesome. I love that framework.
We could probably talk for hours, but I think that's a really beautiful place to stop, which is like a, a cool. note of optimism as well as practical utility of like, if all of this stuff is roiling through your head and it keeps you up at night, maybe before you go to bed, do what Jerry does and just think about how do you still make this life a beautiful life? And if all the things that you worry about go wrong, and I, I think that's a great place to stop. So dude, thank you so much for making the time and having this yeah, conversation. Yeah, so fun. Great. Loved it. Exactly. Exactly the conversation I wanted to have. It was stimulating, it was challenging, it made me think, I learned some stuff, everything I wanted. So so thank you for offering to come on and, and join me on this podcast. Yeah, likewise, Ron. And I always enjoy our conversations. For sure. Hopefully many more to come. But in the meantime, I hope you have a great afternoon. I guess it's just late morning where you are in LA. But I hope you have a great late morning and we'll definitely be talking soon. You too, Ron. Thanks, brother.